Welcome to Top Dogs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we're talking to Marco Williams, the co-director with Stanley Nelson of Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre. This searing film narrates the events that led to the 1921 Race Massacre in Greenwood, a section of Tulsa that had been called the Black Wall Street. Over the course of a few short days, the white residents of Tulsa destroyed this thriving Black community, killing 300 people and burning to the ground dozens of blocks of homes and businesses. In their film, our guest Marco Williams and his co-director Stanley Nelson not only show the events of these horrific days, but the effects that this tragedy has had on the African-American community up until the present day. So this is our first historical documentary. I thought it was really interesting to hear about Marco's creative process. All the different versions of the film and different versions of the tease and how things moved from one part of the movie to the end and where he fit in the different characters and their stories and also just what he considered irrefutable evidence as he put it for proving not that it needs proving but proving beyond any doubt what happened in Tulsa in 1921. Marco Williams is an award-winning director whose credits include Tell Them We Are Rising, the story of historically Black colleges and universities, The Undocumented, Banished, Freedom Summer, Two Towns of Jasper, and In Search of Our Fathers. Marco's awards include a Guggenheim Fellowship, a George Foster Peabody Award, the Alfred I. DuPont Silver Baton, the Full Frame Documentary Festival Spectrum Award, and the Pan-African Film Festival Outstanding Documentary Award. Marco is currently a professor at Northwestern University in the School of Communication, Department of Radio, Film, and Television. One point that Marco makes throughout the interview regards Greenwood itself prior to these appalling events of 1921. He emphasizes the determination of the community to achieve prosperity despite the race codes and Jim Crow laws of the day. In fact, these segregating and demeaning laws and customs led the African-American community to build their own world, one of churches and ice cream shops, every variety of business. He notes that Greenwood's barbershop sold records and even specifies Black Swan records. Black Swan was an African-American owned company founded in Harlem that first produced classical records with African-American talent, but then went on to feature jazz and blues singers like Alberta Hunter, Hattie King Reeves, and Eva Taylor. And I think this demonstrates not only how Greenwood stood on its own as a signifier of African-American success, but that it was part of a larger network of African-American endeavor in the first part of the 1920s. Another really fascinating aspect of the documentary, and one of many that I basically knew almost nothing about before I watched the film, was the relationship between the Trail of Tears in the 1830s and the migration of African-Americans to the Oklahoma territories. And as part of that, learning that African-Americans were held as slaves by Native Americans during that period. There are so many things in this film that basically I'm ashamed that I didn't know the absence of those events in any textbook that I ever read as a high school student or taught as a high school teacher, social studies or even in my own reading. These events have largely been ignored or erased from our Chronicles of American History. Coming up, our conversation with Marco Williams. I think you'll find him very thoughtful, attuned to the enormous themes of the film and his own techniques for communicating them. 
Marco, welcome to Top Docs. Good day, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are listening. Thank you for welcoming me and having me here. Thanks for being here, Marco. Really appreciate it and great to have you. Why do you make documentary films? I don't know anymore in this sense. I've been making documentary films since 1979. So I don't want to sound flippant, but it is all that I know how to do. Well, that and teach filmmaking, which I've been doing for 27 years. I used to make them because I wanted to change the world. I've come to believe that a documentary unto itself can't change the world. The filmmaker needs others to help. So I, I qualify that. I make documentaries because it gives me a chance to encounter and discover people, ideas, and places, and it keeps me actively engaged in the world that I live in. Can you tell us what your film, Tulsa Burning, is about? Tulsa Burning, the 1921 race massacre, tells the story of the creation of, at the turn of the 20th century, the most vibrant, dynamic African-American community in the nation. Not Harlem, not Chicago, but Greenwood, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the tragic jealousy and rage of white citizens of Tulsa who over two and a half days destroyed the community and the lingering effects of that moment. And in some ways, the aptitude for resilience of that community. How did this project come about and how did you and Stanley Nelson come to direct it? The project's like many films evolved. Blackfin Television is a production company that had interacted with Russell Westbrook, the basketball player. He had a developing production company and Blackfin reached out to Russell Westbrook and said, is there things that you want to do? At the time, he had been still with the team from Oklahoma. He had spent some time in Tulsa. He has his own kind of entrepreneurial enterprise for Black youth. He talked about the Tulsa race massacre. Blackfin reached out to Stanley Nelson in no small part because Stanley had done a documentary called Boss about Black entrepreneurs. And a section of Boss is about Tulsa and the destruction of Black Wall Street. Stanley and I had collaborated on a previous documentary, Tell Them We Are Rising, a story of historically Black colleges and universities. So Stanley reached out to me and asked me if I was interested in co-directing this film. While we're talking about Russell Westbrook, he said that he had not been taught about the Tulsa race massacre when he was in school. It was only after a decade in Tulsa that he really understood it. Is that still the case today? Do you think there's a deep ignorance of the events that happened that day? It, it is an incredible fact that a massacre, the first time that Americans were bombed on U.S. soil, not Pearl Harbor, not 9-11, because the planes did drop incendiary devices on the black community. Two and a half days of incredible destruction. And for decades, most Americans did not know about Tulsa. They may have heard the words Black Wall Street, but didn't know about the massacre. What is understandable and beneficial is that pop culture helped to put it into the general zeitgeist, and that would be Lovecraft, Country, and The Watchmen. I can't tell you how often different people would say to me, I didn't know anything about Tulsa, but I remember seeing that scene in The Watchmen and wondering what it was. It's a hundred years since the massacre. Many films and television reports 
when we're presented on the 100th anniversary of the massacre. I think it would be hard pressed to say that there are folks that are not aware of the race massacre of 1921 today. But I would say that prior to May 30th, May 31st and June 1st, 2021, there were probably a lot of people who were not aware of it. So I really want to stress this because the massacre with all understanding and justification gets the attention it should. White citizens massacred their black neighbors. But the Greenwood section of Tulsa was the most vibrant African-American community in the nation. A generation or two after slavery, African-Americans, we demonstrated our capacity in spite of black codes, Jim Crow laws. And when we were told we couldn't shop over there, go to church over there, go to school over there. We basically said, okay, we will do it ourselves. And this is what we've done. And so what I always want to stress is that I don't want people to just look at the tragic events, but to realize that you don't have a tragic event if you don't have something that causes it to be tragic. Tulsa burning the 1921 race massacre, even though the title emphasizes massacre, is that we really show the becoming of this community and why it was so devastating that it was destroyed. One of the things that I think is very effective in the film, in terms of your writing and construction of the piece, is the early part of the film, of part one, in which you document the events leading up to the creation of Greenwood, including the Trail of Tears and the connection between Native American tribes and African Americans, the imposition of Black codes in the South, and then the migration of Blacks who moved West to the Indian territories, as Oklahoma was known at that time. We talked a bit about how widely the events of Tulsa are known, but I was curious what your sense of Americans' knowledge of this earlier period and these connections, because personally, I didn't really know any of this. I knew about Black Coats. I knew that there was some migration westward, but I did not know about the relationship of African-Americans to the five civilized nations as they were referred to. But the reality that the Native American tribes were actually slave-owning tribes and when they were evicted from Southeast Florida and what is now known as the Trail of Tears and sent to the wasteland of Oklahoma Territory because nothing was there <laughs> and that the tribes brought with them their enslaved Africans. And it was, I believe, soon after the end of slavery that they freed their slaves and so now they are living in this territory. So they're African-Americans also living here. Some intermarried and others were freed and they became known as the freed men. That part I did not know. And in a lot of ways, it's a chapter of our history that I think very few people know about. And then you learn that, of course, there were some migrations because the South was untenable and those who had the wherewithal migrated westward. Oklahoma Territory or Indian Territory was not a state. So it was a place you could go to that you could think that you might be able to homestead and be away from the Ku Klux Klan, all sorts of terror if you were an African-American. It does help us to understand how Tulsa 
and Oklahoma gets populated with African-Americans. But there's even an added chapter in that because it wasn't a state, a man named Edwin McCabe had this vision. He was an entrepreneur. He bought up lots of land, advertised for black people to come to the territories and live here, live away from the cruelties, the inequities, everything about Jim Crow and black codes. He even went as far as to go to the United States government and petitioned to make Oklahoma an all-black state. He didn't succeed, but at the time, there were maybe 30 to 40 all-black towns in the territory of Oklahoma before it became a state. And it did exactly what McCabe and what African-Americans wanted. We were free from the degradations of living amongst white people, and we could create things. It didn't mean that there wasn't poverty, et cetera, but we created spaces where we could succeed and excel. And so the Greenwood section of Tulsa in many ways was a all black town unto itself, even though it was part of the larger city of Tulsa. Can you give us a little bit of history about the Greenwood section of Tulsa? The Greenwood section of Tulsa, Oklahoma is birthed in the early 1900s, 1907, 1903. A.J. Smitherman and A.J. Gurley were entrepreneurial African-American men. They bought lots of land on the not-so-good side of the railroad tracks in Tulsa had just boomed. Oil had been discovered. It was a thriving town and African-Americans migrated to Tulsa. And as a result of the wealth of oil and the entrepreneurial spirit of not just A.J. Smitherman and O.W. Gurley, but many other African-Americans, even more importantly, due to their racial conditions at the time where African-Americans were not invited or allowed to shop purchase goods in the white community, a thriving black community was formed. It was so dynamic that it was alleged that Booker T. Washington coined the phrase, calling it the Black Wall Street of America. And can you describe the tragic events that happened in Greenwood and Tulsa on May 31st and June 1st, 1921? Tulsa was essentially a segregated city. It lived by Jim Crow codes. That didn't mean that African-Americans didn't work in white Tulsa. On May 30th, Dick Rowland, a African-American shoeshine boy, for lack of a better way of describing him, went to use the colored bathroom in a building designated for the colored workers to go to. He was in an elevator operated by a white woman named Sarah Page, and nobody knows exactly what happened. The elevator is one of those manually operated. Did a jerk? Were they lovers? Did he attempt to assault her? Lots of different speculation, but Sarah Page screamed. Dick Rowan raced out of the building. Sarah Page was comforted by a white person who spoke to the local white newspaper, and the headline became a white woman assaulted, which was a euphemism for rape. That triggered a blood rage on the part of the white community, Dick Rowland was arrested. A white mob showed up on the evening of May 30th to the courthouse. They wanted to lynch Dick Rowland. African-Americans, many of whom were World War I veterans and led by these racemen, A.J. Smitherman, O.W. Gurley, came to the courthouse, tried to negotiate with the sheriff so that Dick Rowland would not be lynched. They were told that he wouldn't. 
the arrival of a few African-American men incited white people for more to come down to the courthouse. And by this time, and I won't give you the exact hours of the day, 5,000 whites might have assembled outside of the courthouse. Black men came back down. This time they came armed. A shot was fired as one of the participants in the film more or less says, and all hell broke loose for the next 24 hours, white citizens rampaged through Greenwood or Black Wall Street, looting and burning and murdering African-Americans. And when the dust was settled, the guesstimate is 300 dead, 30 to 40 square blocks of this neighborhood completely destroyed. African-Americans were rounded up and brought to the armory. They had to wear a green ribbon. In order to leave, a white person had to vouch for them that they were good Blacks or good Negroes. In many ways, the community of Greenwood never recovered. It never had the veneer that it had after that two and a half days. What did you know about Tulsa and Greenwood going into the project? Quite a bit about Tulsa because I made a documentary called Banished that is about racial cleansings in the U.S. in which white citizens expelled, burned down, in some instances killed their black neighbors. The particularity of Banish was at the time of making that film, those communities remained virtually all white. At the time of making the film, Tulsa was often brought to my attention. So I made the film that came out in 2007. So let's say 2005, 2006, Tulsa really became prominent in my awareness, but Tulsa did not fit the strict prescription for Banish, which was communities needed to remain all white to this day. So I would say that I began to know about Tulsa fully. And so in some ways, despite my education and a master's degree in African-American studies, Tulsa was not really in my consciousness until I started to make a movie about a similar topic. Banished very powerfully tells the stories of three counties, I believe, were pretty much still all white until quite recently, maybe still are, and how they came that way. It really sets out this playbook, if you will, of there's an accusation, there's a lynching, and then there's this forceful expelling. Is Tulsa a lot like those? Is it different? How do you balance the sort of thing that seems regional, even national, with the local realities of Tulsa? Tulsa fits right into the episodes that banished highlights, and those are only three of many more. What we're looking at is a period of loosely the end of reconstruction, which brings about black codes, which are laws that in many ways relegate African-Americans back to a kind of enslaved status. Banish goes up through the late 1920s. Tulsa exists. In 1921, there are other episodes during this period, Red Summer, which we know of in the summer of 1919, where I'd say at least 10 African-American neighborhoods or communities had violence inflicted upon them. The common thread in all of these is an allegation of rape or an assault by a black man on a white woman. It's like holding up a red cape to a bull. It seems to incense the pride of white manhood to no end. I won't be able to quote this directly, but Ida B. Wells, the great, great everything, journalist, activist, she 
recognized and wrote about the fact that the destruction and the lynching of black men rarely was about the relationship to a white woman. It was almost always a consequence of black advancement and white resentment and white jealousy. And so I think that's what we are really seeing in this period. And that encompasses black codes, which wanted to relegate African-Americans to a non-human status, a second-class status in the United States. That's why Tulsa fits in with Banished, fits in with Red Summer, fits in with numerous other instances in which African-American communities were destroyed or African-American people were terrorized through the form of lynching. One of the things that's interesting in terms of what's going on in Tulsa in this time period is with the oil boom, white Tulsa is seemingly extremely prosperous. So this idea of white jealousy of this successfully self-sustaining black community in Greenwood seems harder to accept and justify in any rational way. It leads me toward thinking that it's predominantly about white hatred of Blacks. But I think jealousy and resentment are triggers of a kind of, of rage. And if you have conditioned yourself as white people to believe that African-Americans are inferior, that they're not your equals, and you've relegated them to, at the time, real estate that's on the other side of the railroad tracks, it's on the low side of the city, and you look across and they are doing fabulously well, but they're not supposed to be doing fabulously. They're not our equal. They're, they can't be as good as us. And yeah, I think that is hatred and that is resentment and that is jealousy. Surely racism is irrational. We rationalize it. We come to understand what causes it or how come people feel it, but it is those things of some belief that others are not your equal or not deserving. It would not be enough to utilize derogatory terminology about the community in which the white newspapers of Tulsa at that period did. They referred to it as Little Africa. They talked about the whorehouses and the bars, any ways in which to make it seem less than. And despite that, it was like, despite that, it was like, F you, man. Yeah, we could have some bars and restaurants. And if people want to warehouses, oh, and there's some white people coming down here, the warehouses, movie theaters, ice cream parlors, dozens of churches. We're going to have a thriving metropolis. It's going to be all black. And so I think that therein is the source of the incitement to rage that was uncontrollable. I want to get into current events because I think that your film, Tulsa Burning, is not just about 1921. It's also about 2021. And I'd say this is a theme or an approach throughout a lot of your work, which is the past isn't the past. We look at the past to understand the present. Is that how you think about this? Yes. Ironically, I don't exactly think of myself as a historical documentary maker, although I've made banished Freedom Summer, Tell Them We Are Rising and Tulsa Burning is looking at the connection of the past to the present and vice versa. I'm very interested when telling a historical story to try to understand its ripple or reverberations across the years, decades, or centuries to help us to better understand 
what is going on today. If we understand a little bit more about our history, we all have a better understanding about where we are today. So Tulsa Burning, without a doubt, I was equally drawn to this story to tell as a documentary because of what happened a hundred years ago, but it was my awareness as well of the effort in the city of Tulsa beginning in maybe it was 2019, 2018 to look for mass graves. There was always a suggestion that what happened to the blacks who were killed, different people talked about bodies being dumped, some in the river, some here, some there. When I joined making this film, the city of Tulsa was involved in looking for mass graves. So that gave me one immediate connection of present day to past and great metaphors for the movie, excavating, excavating dirt, excavating the present in order to uncover the past, et cetera, et cetera. And notwithstanding, if you can, just speaking in purely filmic terms, having a present day story is an invitation to some who might not otherwise wish to be engaged with history. If I'm ever doing something that one might say is a historical documentary, I always try to start with what's the connection to the present. Reverend Robert Turner, who's pastor of the Vernon AME Church in Tulsa, is the first person I think we meet in the film. How did you meet Reverend Turner and why did you decide to have him basically introduce the film and become a central character in it? This really does connect to the past story and, and it connects to the earliest impulse I had for making this film, which was to make a case for reparations. Tulsa makes very clear there's the evidence of wealth, of lives, of property, the destruction, and the absence of any kind of compensation or repair. And an early draft, he was not the first voice. It was actually the attorney who's brought a reparations lawsuit that was so fixated on the explicitness of reparations that early on, I had a version where Demario Solomon Simmons is the first voice, but it then became clear that, that was not good for storytelling. You want to build the case and then make the statement of the case. As I was thinking about reparations, I became aware of Reverend Turner because there were reports that on a weekly basis, maybe beginning in 2019, that he would go to City Hall every Wednesday with a bullhorn, often a very small or modest group of people, and called a rally demanding the city of Tulsa make repair and reparations for the 1921 race massacre. Right away, there was somebody who was doing something in the present that would give me a way to have something to follow. And as the terminology I use is what might be a go forward story. Reverend Turner also is the pastor of the only structure or part of the structure, which is the basement remaining from 1921. Vernon AME Church was there in 1921. Vernon holds a very significant place in this larger narrative, and it is on what was Black Wall Street. So there became a synergy for that. There are a couple other reasons. You know, these are purely in a filmic terms. There's probably no Black preacher that you would not consider for a film. They are the greatest orators. They seem to all have booming voices, voices that you were killed for because they resonate 
there are many reasons, and he's able to locate us almost immediately at the start of this story. Throughout the film, we do see scenes of this mass grave excavation at Oak Lawn Cemetery. Some coffins do end up getting dug up. And then this incredible woman, Brenda Nails Alford, talks in the film about this, quote, joyous moment when remains were found at Oak Lawn. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about the overall effect of the excavation on families who were descendants of those who died in the massacre. The critical compliment to Reverend Turner is Brenda Alford, who has bona fides that Turner doesn't even have. She is a descendant of the people who were there in Tulsa when the massacre occurred. The emotional moral compass is Brenda Alford, who has family and grew up in Tulsa and heard stories, and she brings us to the cemetery. So the excavation is the moral and emotional affirmation and confirmation of what so many people knew occurred. It offers what feels irrefutable evidence. And that's a funny way of saying it because there is already irrefutable evidence. Like people took pictures of the destruction of, of Tulsa. There are photos that says, run the Negro out of Tulsa. There's no hiding from it, but this is different. It's not about property. It's not about the visual evidence of the destruction. It's about the fact that there were people who were tossed like garbage. And as Reverend Turner says, no one was given a chance to say goodbye. Finding the mass graves allows a person like Brenda, who I believe her family was not killed in the massacre, but she stands in for that. But in many ways, what's really important to the excavation is what it does for the African-American community in particular but I think even for some white citizens and residents as well. As I said, it makes real that people were murdered and discarded. All people, I think, and all nations and all cultures and all religions have a relationship to our ancestors and how we honor them upon their passing. And the mass graves in many ways tells us that honor wasn't done and it's a chance to, to give honor. I want to talk a little bit about filmmaking at that moment. I am a big practitioner of observational documentary, the antithesis of historical documentary, where you have to interview people and principally scholars and you cut to photographs. I love observational documentaries. So when the excavations took place, I had my camera people film the process. The process is going to be enormous. It doesn't matter if the first day they don't find anything. It's this gradual cleaving of the earth from it being whole to drone shots showing how cavernous it was. Deborah Peretz, who took on the editing of the excavation material, cut every scene slowly, let it unfold slowly. I loved it. Clearly didn't have the drama that I thought it might have. So we started to insert some people talking to contextualize it, got better. The section when the multiplicity of mass graves are uncovered, all the bystanders, we had them talking, saying different things as they were observing. And I looked at that over and over again, 
And I realized I had separated the first discovery of a grave with a whole nother scene before you got to the second. And I looked at it and I said, no, they have to be juxtaposed. And when you get to the second one, nothing is said for, I think it's a maybe a minute and a half. I use Bradford Marsalis' music. It carries it emotionally, but it allows all of us, not just the Black community, not just the descendants, but all of us to bear witness quietly to give honor to the reality that here are people who were not given the chance to be honored. You mentioned you love observational, but I love your personal films and when you're in there. The last time we talked was about In Search of Our Fathers, and I thought about that film. Watching this film, The Search for Answers, The Search for Connection, I really felt like that's probably something you carry with you when you even make a film like this. I think you're right, Ken, and I suspect that all of us who are making these films probably are making some version over and over again, but in different ways. In Search for Our Fathers, it's not my very first film. The first one is From Harlem to Harvard. But In Search for Our Fathers is explicitly about a search for who am I and who are we. Tulsa burning, the excavations are the most literal manifestation of that, but the movie itself is a search and a representation of who are we and what is our identity and who we are as a nation. Certainly kind of recurrent questions that manifest in different ways in my film work. We talk a bit about inviting the viewer in. So let me just position myself openly here. In both Banished and in this film, there comes a moment where kind of a middle-aged white guy with, I don't know if he's truly a liberal, but he has some liberal ideas. The mayor of Tulsa, I believe, and in Forsyth, I think it's one of the county commissioners. He seems to want to engage. For me, great, here's somebody I can identify with. And then they turn out to be incredibly disappointing. They cannot make the stance that you hope they make. I made a conscious choice that there were not going to be any white voices in the film. This was not about the white community. Now there are white voices. The mayor appears, the mayor appears in a press conference, not in a kind of context of the mayor. Other than that, the only whites who appear are scholars who are contextualizing or retelling the events. And yet I still believe that if one stays with it, by the time one gets to the end, it's irrefutable that a tragedy occurred unjustly and people have not been provided any form of repair. Now, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know how a white person ultimately receives it, whether they feel like, where are the people who are like me, liberal, who care? There are images that there are two women at that moment, as I said, after the caskets have been found, who hold their chest. They're us. But this is a film that's not about the experience of white people. I was not interested in doing that. This is about what happened to the African-American community. So that's a conscious choice. And if in the end that means some people don't come to it, I'm okay with that because I do think it still provides an invitation. It's not saying all white people are bad. It's saying there is a rage inside white people or inside anyone about how they see others who they think are inferior. If that is not you, white person, then you don't have to feel indicted. If you do have some of that in you, then you have an opportunity to reflect on the transgression and hopefully reflect on how you would not be party to something like that in the future. One of the things that I said in the film I made about 
Two Towns of Jasper, which I co-directed with Whitney Dow, which is about the dragging murder in 1998 of James Byrd Jr. I can't imagine any of us are going to be witness to a racially motivated murder where an African-American man is dragged behind a pickup truck. But almost all of us are witness to forms of racial violence on a regular basis, and that's within our communities, and that's in language. And that's at the Thanksgiving table, that's at the Hanukkah table, the Christmas table. That's where uncle so-and-so says, and you fill in the blank, the derogatory term, and what do we do? I try to make films in which people have a chance to see themselves in order to see how they can activate their better selves. I think it's almost a full half of the second episode that really focuses on contemporary events. How did you decide you wanted to include the 2016 killing by Tulsa police of unarmed African-American resident Terrence Crutcher? From the very beginning, the initial deck that was pitched to history and other entities was the past-present story. Nobody had an idea of how to do it. I spent a lot of time trying to think about the relationship of past to present, not just events, not just incendiary things, but what's the, the real connection. Terrence Crutcher's murder is about the residue of the past. And DeMario says that the very attitudes that would allow or invite or compel, that's the right word, the white citizens to go across the railroad tracks and destroy the black community is in some ways what has not been resolved. Hannibal Johnson says with seething rage, no white person was ever convicted for anything that occurred in 1921. The absence of its resolution is what could allow Officer Shelby to shoot Terrence Crutcher in the back with his hands up. It's basically a kind of impunity that black life doesn't matter. Again, speaking just cinematically, the visual opportunity, and not to be opportunistic, but in making a film, you want it to resonate on as many levels as possible. That there are images of African-Americans with their hands up after being led to the concentration camps, essentially, is eerie and haunting in the recall of all of the African-Americans who have been shot by law enforcement or otherwise with their hands up in the air. I did want to call attention to a really beautiful bit of filmmaking on your part. At the beginning of the film, I think it's in the pre-title sequence, you fade from a shot a black and white photo of a young African-American male with his hands up in Tulsa to that shot in the grainy video footage of Terrence Crutcher with his hands up. And then later you go the other way and you see a fade from that contemporary footage back to the original still. And it really emphasized for me that connection between the past and the present and the fact that these issues are far from being resolved. Cheeses are always the hardest. What do you put before the title? Particularly on TV, where you're trying to get people to tune in. For me, for it to be more than just a tease, if it is teasing, it's teasing the core themes and the core ideas of the cinema. 
there were other iterations, but that one became clear once we had succeeded with more or less solving the storytelling of transitioning from the past to Terrence Crutcher. Teases probably, at least for me, are usually one of the last things to do because they are trying to think about what you're trying to let the audience know subliminally, directly, what they're going to experience or feel or see. The film isn't just about victimization of the Black community in Greenwood. It's about how people over the decades, including now, have fought back, whether it's through legal means, through the streets, through other efforts. And we see that most particularly and poignantly with the Black Lives Matter movement following the murder of George Floyd. Can you talk a bit about how you managed to capture that moment and incorporate it into the film? I appreciate the question because it does tie into Terrence Crutcher. So Black Lives Matter matters everywhere. Black Lives Matter is being articulated and expressed everywhere, including Tulsa. And it certainly had a explicit reason with the murder of Terrence Crutcher by a police officer, but it also had opportunity for being voiced on Juneteenth in 2016, when then President Trump was having a rally in the city of Tulsa on the weekend of the last vestiges of uh, American slavery. The challenge, though, was not for it to be about Black Lives Matter protests writ large and not even about Black Lives Matter protests and, and if you will, Terrence Crutcher specifically, but how to connect that to the larger organism of the film. My approach to that is, okay, who helps us to make that connection. So I look for a person, a character, a participant. That's the first step. Greg Robinson speaks at a Juneteenth rally about Black Lives Matter, and he makes a connection of past to present. That gave me one way in. The activist community of Tulsa, principally African-American, knew the connection themselves. They had a rally and protest and put up tombstones made out of cardboard and put the names of murder victims, contemporary murder victims, but also the names of folks who died in the massacre. As I shared earlier, looking for multiple levels to make the connection. And that material is a convergence of everything past and present. I hope that people see it. One will see names that they recognize today. Also marked on it is the names of somebody from 1921. And it just is a kind of echo or call and, and response to past and presence. So again, not so much a tip of the hat to Black Lives Matter, but a, an effort to make clear that Black lives have always mattered and that there have been demands for justice for Black lives for centuries. Greenwood Rising, history center that's being built, seems to touch upon the issues of gentrification, the nature of memory. Who owns history? Greenwood Rising, if I were making this film that didn't need to be broadcast on the anniversary of the massacre, I would have followed that for the very things that you brought up. What is history and memory? Who owns it? How is it appropriated, commodified? Who's controlling the narrative? And it seems that some of those ideas are tricked or stimulated. Greg Robinson is a strong vocal proponent against 
Greenwood Rising, and rightfully, in my opinion, if a filmmaker can have an opinion about something within the film, they raised millions of dollars to build a state-of-the-art museum that ostensibly is going to bring dollars into Greenwood in what was Black Wall Street. It is being gentrified, a minor league baseball stadium, condominiums. Yes, there's some Black businesses there, but essentially the Black people who were kicked out of Greenwood, if you will, or had Black Wall Street destroyed are having it once again. And I think there's no doubt that if you can raise $25 million for this, you probably could have found $5 million or $10 million, some gesture, which they tried to do late in the game for the descendants, in my opinion. Even if it's a good repository of knowledge, it's still pretty obscene that no money was thought to be given to the three living descendants and their descendants. In terms of who gets to tell history, I think it's the historian Carlos Hill in the film who says, if we want to understand the Black experience in the race massacre, we have to start and end with how Black survivors narrated the terror of what occurred. You include in the film this incredibly powerful footage that was gathered by a local woman named Eddie Faye Gates, in which she interviewed survivors from, I think, 1997 to 2001. How did you come across that footage and how did you figure out how to use it? Because I think you've used it masterfully. Thank you. Finding the footage relates to how do you narrate this story? The big question, who gets to tell this story? It's not so much whose story, but who gets to tell it? The historical story inevitably gets to be told by a certain group or cohort of people, historians. So Scott Ellsworth, Hannibal Johnson, Carlos Hill, and those are people who have the privilege and we're grateful to research, to be motivated to bring this to life. But I was never satisfied with historian archival, historian archival. And I desperately wanted to know who else told the story. And there was a, what was then called the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. It was an attempt to provide evidence that this actually happened because it had been buried ostensibly. White newspapers didn't talk about it. The black newspapers no longer existed. It was at best whispered in family homes. It was not taught in schools. It was a buried history. And part of the effort to make the moral imperative that there should be compensation, the first case for reparations. Eddie Fagate's local historian made an effort to collect all of these oral histories. Once I became aware of that, I spent a lot of time trying to think about how do we get these voices in the film? My creative team, we really thought a lot about how and where can we have the voices of survivors, those who were there, who had a memory. This led to an equally important person in the historical narrative, Mary E. Parrish who two weeks after the massacre started collecting stories from black survivors. She titled the book, unpublished at the time, The Events of the Tulsa Disaster. In that are a series of accounts. And so that's where I had this idea, all right, we're going to use those accounts in the massacre section and Eddie Fagate's when we are ready to build the case for reparations. Carlos Hill's statement, and I give credit to Ray Hubley, who edited this section with me. Ray 
found that Carlos remark as we were trying to think about how to put it together. And it is precise. Carlos says, if you really want to understand this, he's basically saying, not me, historian, not this historian, not that historian, not Reverend Turner, not Demario Solomon Simmons, maybe Brenda Allsworth, because she's a descendant. It is the survivors. It's from these people. And they're about a dozen or 15 in there. They meander and they're delightful. These are senior citizens in their 80s. They were children at the time, so their memories are not rock solid, but they bore witness. It allowed for a montage of fantastic, dignified black and white photos of the survivors. Not every survivor gets to speak, but many survivors gets to be present, gets to firm what Brenda goes on to say that all they really wanted was their piece of the American dream and they had earned it and they got a nightmare. I was rewatching it today and I only wish that I had ended the trio with Booker's remarks when he tells the story of his sister say, Kenny is the world on fire. The community was being burned, houses are being burned. She's five, let's say he's seven. Imagine your five-year-old sister saying, is the world on fire? And he says, it sure feels like it's the end of the world in this. It's profound. And if you don't believe what has happened based on the photographs, you now have uh, living witnesses. In the end, what is most significant to me is the fact that if you want to understand this moment, you have to hear it from those who live it. And then it makes it, and I know I've used this term a lot, irrefutable. You talked earlier about how you ended up deciding to start the film with Reverend Turner, but initially you thought you might start with the Tulsa lawyer, Demario Solomon Simmons, who is representing the family of Terrence Crutcher, who was killed by police in 2016. Demario does have the last word, and he says, there cannot be any justice for Greenwood until there is proper respect restitution and repair. What do you think are the chances for that in Tulsa? I don't know what the chances are. You can't legislate people's hearts. Respect has to be something that an individual activates. Now, a community can think about opportunities to make declaration of a way forward that might engender, let's say, respect and repair. Demario Solomon Simmons not only is the attorney for the wrongful death lawsuit for the murder of Terrence Crutcher, he's also the lead attorney for, there might be a half dozen plaintiffs for reparations for the Tulsa massacre. I'm not a lawyer, but it's an interesting case. Restitution and repair are two different ideas. Repair could be many things. I think repair, and this is what I explored in Banished, it could be an apology. It could be a monument, it could be curriculum, scholarships. I'm not advocating for any one of them per se, but there are a lot of ways to make repair, but you also have to declare a, a wrong that you're now repairing. That's what we do in relationships. I'm sorry for doing such and such. I started by thinking 50-50 for restitution. I now might say 60-40, 60 against 44. I think there's a, certainly a moral imperative at the moment, but how long that sustains is an interesting question. Just back to filmmaking, the idea to start with him was not the right one, but to end with him is the right 
choice because there's the complete buildup. Now we've have all this evidence and if you will, the lawyer brings us to a summation. This is how I would like you to think about this. And of course he's not the only voice, but he's the concluding one. I'm still learning and reminding myself how to make films. That's sometimes your first thought is not the best one. You need to step back and understand what you're trying to do and then be clear about where you need a certain idea or dramatic moment to occur. The film ends with this question of why does Tulsa matter? Why do you think it matters? Tulsa matters to me because of the evidence of it. Now I'll unpack that. Tulsa matters because we have all the evidence of why it mattered. There's the evidence, and I've said this, of a generation and a half after slavery of the creation of the most successful, vibrant African-American community in the nation. A indication of who we are as people and what we could achieve, even under conditions of segregation and attempts to limit us. So Tulsa matters because the evidence is there that we matter and it mattered. Tulsa matters because the evidence of racial hatred is so vividly on display in the archival footage where there's moving pictures, but more importantly, in the end, photographs of the destruction in which you could say there's a kind of gleefulness of something achieved by the white community. And so Tulsa matters because it points out to us the inhumanity of racism and inequality in what happens when those who are in power get to exercise power in the most brutal fashion. And Tulsa matters because of the sheer accumulation of the evidence of it mattering from Mary Parrish's collection of the events of the Tulsa disaster to the scholars who've written books about it, to Eddie Pay Gates's oral histories with the descendants, to Demario Solomon Simmons bringing a lawsuit to remind us of it. We have evidence of a moment in our history where great possibility existed and it was crushed. And while there has been no full repair, there is a resilience and unwillingness to let this story be not told. There is a demand for people to be aware of it. And as long as Tulsa exists and records of it exist, it will be that thing that reminds us, I think perhaps more vividly than many other injustices in our nation, more than Bull Connor and police dogs and fire hoses, more than Birmingham, because in this moment you have the great sense of possibility of America, of Black America, and you have the worst side of America all at once. And that is why Tulsa matters to me. Can you tell us what you're working on next? I am busy and I'm trying to learn from my elders that it's good to have films in various stages of iteration. So I have a film in post-production called Murders That Matter that looks at violence and murder within the African-American community. It's not about police killings. And this follows a African-American woman who has had great trauma in her life due to murders in her family. And she's trying to 
transform her communities. I'm in production on a frontline film in conjunction with Cartemplin Films. It's called Chicago Lawn. It's about the neighborhood of Chicago Lawn in the city of Chicago. And it's a mosaic uh, documentary of a community over the course of a year as it weathers, survives, transforms during the period of COVID and the aftermath of George Floyd. And then I have things in development. I'm trying to make sure that there's always something ready to be served and then something else ready to be cooked and something else ready to be put together with the ingredients. Marco, I think your documentary about the Tulsa massacre and its aftermath also matters. And I want to congratulate you and your team on your resilience, your artful storytelling and the really important way that you've connected the past to the present. So congratulations on the film and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you both very much. It's a real privilege actually to reflect on the film a few months after it's done, as opposed to in the midst of it. And I so I really appreciate that. I hope your audiences find some benefit. Thank you, Margo. I shared it with my children. They learned a great deal. That's great to hear. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? I tried to name drop here and there <laughs> a, a team of people who made this possible. There's a woman at Blackfin, Julie Sisson, who I nicknamed, she just gets things done. What a producer. This film doesn't exist without Maya Harris. We were co-nominated for nonfiction Emmy for the film. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary you don't think gets the attention it should? I rarely look at my films after I've made them, but I have two in mind. They are films that did not receive a broadcast. They're two films that are very different than what I'm known for. And one is called Lottie Holly, The Truth to the Dirt, which is a short documentary about the artist Lottie Holly, who makes beautiful, extraordinary artwork out of found objects. And the other is called Crafting an Echo, which is about the creation of a dance for the Martha Graham Dance Company. It's a collision of dance styles. It's a Greek choreographer named Andonis Maniadakis, whose style and approach is very different than the very rigid formalism of Martha Graham. Most people don't see them, but I think they're gems. Somebody has to get in touch with me. I have a Twitter handle that's hip truth. I'm not very good at distribution. I like to make stuff. 